right, well, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are in uh, the series called End Game. We are walking through uh, the study of the first letter Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. And so if you got a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Thessalonians. That's where we're going to camp out. We're in chapter 2. Uh, I want to share something real fast because I want you to understand why we're doing this. Um, it, why are we walking through a, a book of the Bible? Because we do different kinds of series throughout the year that have a different focus and, and different things. But I want to share why we're doing this. So um, about almost 10 years ago now, uh, my, my parents gave me a copy of this this is a song that was written on some letterhead from a you know, hotel in Chicago. And this is the song, It Is Well. And I love that song. And if you don't know that song, it's been changing and it's been a foundation of understanding for the church for almost 150 years. That's how this thing, how powerful this song has been. But I love the song not just because the words are powerful and when I sing it, I feel like this is my heart singing these words. But I love it because of the story behind this letter. Okay? Because the story is this. Horatio Spafford, here's, um, he was a well-known lawyer in the Chicago area. He, um, had a, he was married, he had you know, five kids, and then one of his, his son died from pneumonia. And so his family started kind of walking through just sorrow. And he was, he was beginning to wonder what was going on. Well, anyways, his family then jumps on a boat and they're heading across the Atlantic. So his wife, Anna, and now their four daughters are heading across the Atlantic and their ship collides with a Scottish ship and everybody goes down and his wife is found you know, hanging on to wreckage and is rescued by this, you know, rowboat looking for any survivors. She gets to land and she wires her husband and says, saved alone, what shall I do? Can you imagine yourself in that situation for a moment? Your world just sank to the bottom of the ocean and you're left there. What do I do now? And so he jumps on the next ship he can to go be with his grieving wife. And while he's crossing the Atlantic, the captain calls him and says, hey, this is the place where your daughters went down. And that's when he comes and he writes these words. I want you to listen to these words, okay? He writes this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Here's the deal. This was figurative until you realize that his sorrows came from the billowing sea, right? So when sorrows like sea billows roll, this is a family acquainted with grief. He says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. And as though he's got to remind his soul, no, this is true. He repeats it. He says, it is well, it is well with my soul. Doesn't that kind of change the song for you? When you understand the story behind the song, doesn't it begin to give you a different understanding of, of the power of it? Because for many of us, we know that story now and we go, oh my goodness, here's somebody who shares my kind of sorrow. They get it. They know what loss feels like. Or maybe you heard this at a relative's funeral. And so when you hear those words, you're reminded of this moment in your life. And so the song carries with it a lot more weight than it should. That's why we're going through this letter. 
Because when we, when we want to walk, we want to walk away with the, from this series with a deeper and greater understanding of what's behind this letter. We want to share the story that is leading us to understanding all these words Paul is talking about. And so for this series, what we're trying to do is go deeper and greater understanding. What is he doing? But to do that, we've got to ask some different kind of questions. We need to get to know the story. So I'm going to do this real fast. I'm going to give you four questions for us as we study the Bible. Whenever you study the Bible, these four questions need to be a part of your thinking because we're going to use some of these questions as we go through the text tonight. So here's the first one. Key questions for Bible study. Number one, what did the text mean to the original audience? All right, now I actually have all these questions posted in my Bible so I can remember, oh, am I doing the process? Am I learning how this goes? But the question is, what did it mean to the original audience? When Horatio wrote the song, It Is Well, what did it mean to him? It meant that God himself was comforting his grief in the middle of the Atlantic. And the only thing he could do is pour out these words in his heart. That's what the song means to him. It means something different to us. So put yourself in the story. Ask, what is the context? It's always so crucial. Here's the second question. How is their context different than ours? How is their context different than our context? This is when you begin to build the bridge from the first century to the 21st century. Paul, he was trying to get a message to the churches so he would write letters. For us, when we want to get a message to the campuses, we record a video. It's a different time. It's a different age, but we're using. So some of the things in our context are the same. Paul and us, we're all adamant about getting the message of Jesus Christ as far as we can do it. Now, how we do that changes because context has changed. So the question, how is our context now different than theirs? Third question is this. What is the true for all time teaching or principle? And does it line up with the rest of Scripture? So what's the true fraud? Whenever you read scripture, there's something for you that surpasses time, it surpasses geography, it surpasses, you know, any kind of stand, it, it's, it's this true for all time reality. And so you should be asking that question. And finally this, how does it apply to us today? Here's why this is so important. Because so many of us, sometimes we study it, we learn it, we know the background, we know all these things. But if you never ask the question, how does this apply to my life today? How does it change the way that I'm living right now? Here's what often happens. When you apply the truths of Scripture, that moves it from information in your mind into transformation of your heart. If you never ask the question, how does this apply? If you never seek out or you never begin walking out what you're learning in Scripture, then it's always going to be information. It doesn't transfer to transformation until you start walking it out. So you've got to ask that question. How does this apply to where we're at? All right. So those four questions are what drive any good Bible study. So as we're walking through this, we're trying to get the story behind the text so we have a deeper understanding of what's going on. And we're going to use these questions throughout the process. Are you guys ready to go? That's the intro. We're done with the intro. Everybody's got a Bible out. First Thessalonians. We're in chapter two. If you missed chapter one, go back and watch it. Uh, but here we go. Chapter two, verse one. Here's what it says. For you yourselves know, brothers, and we're throwing sisters too. You yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain. Why would he say that? Why would he say it's not in vain? Because everybody thought it was in vain. 
Everybody, other translations say, you got to know that it wasn't a failure because you got to think back. Remember, Cam said this last week. He said, Paul was there for three weeks, maybe up to three months. But how did he leave? Oh, in the course of night, because he was running from his life. Paul was the guy who was beat out of every city he was trying to launch a church in. And so when everybody looks at his story, they go, you are failing at this. You are not doing very good right now. Everybody seems to hate you and what you're trying to do in our city. And so Paul's going, no, 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 no. Listen, come back to me, church. Listen, it is not in vain that I did these things. It's not in vain what happened. And so for the next section of this passage, what he's going to be doing is showing you, no, no, no. This is what happened. And it's so important for us to understand what was going on because what happened created a foundation for a church that became a beaming light of darkness for the known world in the first century. Even other churches were going, something's happening at that church and we need to understand what it is. So Paul says, it is not in vain. Listen, he goes, verse two, here's what he says. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he's kicked out of Philippi. And so this is what's amazing about this. The, first, the letter to the, first, the Thessalonians, you can read about it, what's going on in Acts 16 and 17. So here's what happens. In Philippi, he ticks off all these people and he gets imprisoned and he gets beat and he gets chained to a wall. And here's what happens. You ready for this? When he says, we were suffered and been shamefully treated, but in our boldness we declare the gospel. Look what happens. Acts 16, verse 25. It says, about midnight, this is in Philippi now, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul's sitting there at midnight, chained to a wall and going, listen, if I'm chained here, everybody else is chained here. This is our chance to share the gospel. You and I would not be thinking about prison as our opportunity to now share the gospel with people. But Paul's going, I'm held captive. They're held captive. Let's sing, Silas. And so they begin to sing and they begin to share and they begin to pray. And people are hearing the gospel in prison. Because here's one thing Paul understood. He understood that his suffering became the platform for sharing the gospel. His suffering became a platform for sharing the gospel. A lot of times our suffering cripples us. Our suffering puts us in a place where we think like, oh, I don't, I'm not good enough or I, have, there's, I don't have much to give. I can't do this. I can't pull this off anymore. But Paul was crazy. The more he was beaten, the more he was chained up, it seemed like the more he revealed, he saw that I've been given a greater opportunity to now share the gospel. The only way he got to Rome is because he was under arrest. This is what's crazy for us. How many of us have that same mindset? The stuff you're walking through right now, the hard stuff, the suffering because you're a believer in Jesus. Do you look at that suffering as a platform for you to now share how awesome our God is? That's the journey 
that we're on. You see, Paul understood something. Everybody else was looking at what happened in Thessalonica. They were looking at it and going, that was a failure. And Paul's got different eyes. And he's going, this was not in vain. This was not a failure. Let me show you what was really going on behind the scenes. So verse 3, he keeps going. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He wasn't trying to get stuff out of people. He wasn't in it so that he could get wealthy. He wasn't in it. And whenever Paul talks about impurity, that's usually referring to sex. He's saying, I'm not using my power. I'm not using my position to get stuff out of people, to use people. And he brings this up because that was happening. There are these religious professionals in the first century. Think about how crazy this is. Religious professionals using their position to get stuff out of people, to abuse people, to make much of themselves and get wealthy. It happened in the first century and it happens in our century. And he says, that's not the way that we do things. That is not how it works. So he was sensitive to all this stuff happening. And he keeps going. Verse four, he says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He had one thing on his mind, pleasing God. And when pleasing God is the only thing on your mind, the things of earth seem to just not have a hold on you anymore. It's amazing how that works. He says, that's the kind of people we are. We're the ones with our minds set on God, not on this stuff. We don't do things according to the standards of our world. So he goes on. He says, we were approved by God to please God, not men, because he's the one who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, meaning I'm going to say something to you so that you would think nice things of me and then give me something. That's what flattery is. It's a lie. I'm going to say whatever I can to get something out of you. He says, that's not how we do things. As you know, nor with a pretext of greed. He wasn't driven by money. He gave up all that stuff. He says, God is my witness. So here's how one commentary talks about Paul's situation. It says this. If they indeed aimed at wealth, power, and high repute, they would have to be dismissed as men who signally failed to achieve their aim by secular standards now. They were marked to the end of their days by poverty, by weakness, disrepute, and all sorts of tribulation. But they assessed their lot not by secular standards. Look at this. It comes from 2 Corinthians 6.10. It says, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. In Paul's mind, he was not lacking. In Paul's mind, he had everything because his mind was set on God. He keeps going in verse 6, though. Here we go. Nor did we seek to seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What he's saying is, like, listen, as leaders in the church, and our work is the primary work of sharing the gospel and leading people to live the life of Jesus. As having that position, it is within our right for the church to support that work. But he's saying we didn't even demand what was ours. He didn't, he, he said, because look in 1 Timothy 5, 18, it says this, for scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It's referring to preachers right there. It's kind of interesting that they refer to preachers as cows, but you know, whatever. Um, 
So do not muzzle the ox while it treads grain. The laborer deserves its wages. Listen, the work of Paul, the work of the church, the work of church leaders is to share the gospel, to preach the gospel, to equip for spreading the gospel. And it is within Paul's right to ask for support from the churches as he's launching churches. But again, there's so much messed up stuff going on that he says, we didn't even demand this because we knew it was going to create a barrier. And so he goes on, verse 7, but we were gentle among you. There was something else driving him. We were gentle among you like a nursing mom takes care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you've become so dear to us. Listen, Paul, what drove him is his love for the church. He sees this beautiful group of people in Thessalonica and he goes, oh my goodness, God is doing a work in this family that is changing this city and it's changing the world. And he says, man, like a mom, we're coming in and we're wanting to care for you. You're like kids and we need to care for you. We need to love you. And he says, not just sharing the gospel because that is crazy important, but the gospel being shared through his life. He's saying we're sharing, he's pouring his life out. He's saying everything within me is yours. All that I have, I'm giving it to you because it's worth it. That's how the church works. We're not driven by greed. We don't talk to each other with deceit and flattery, trying to get something out of each other. No, we share our lives. We give of ourselves. We pour ourselves out because that is when we begin to experience the love of Jesus. And so he says, we pour ourselves out for you because you become so dear to us. Just like Jesus, Paul saw his role as the leader and apostle, as one of a servant. That's how the kingdom works. Not as an attempt to gain power, not an attempt to gain wealth, not an attempt to gain something out of you. But he saw his role as that of a servant. Verse 9, he keeps going. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So by day, Paul is a tent maker. We learned that from Acts 18. He met Priscilla and Aquila. They're like, you make tents? I make tents. This is crazy. We should do ministry together. So they start their little tent making business. And so they're doing that by day. And it's making some of the other tent makers in the city mad, which is why he gets beat up sometimes. And so they're doing that by day. But at night, he's gathering with the church and he's sharing about, here's what the kingdom of God is like. This is what it means to follow Jesus. When he says he's your Lord and Savior, here's what it means. He can rescue you from your sin and give you life because he can set you on an eternal life with him. And so he's preaching the gospel. But at the same time, he's making tents to have a living he did whatever he could to make sure there was no barrier between him and the church. Verse 10, look at what it says. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. He says, you saw this, right? If there's anything that could potentially hinder the message of the gospel, Paul made it his aim to remove it. Because here's the reality. Listen to this. Oftentimes what hurts the church today is the, is the content of our, of our message 
doesn't match up with the character of our lives. What hurts the church is not government. What hurts the church is not persecution. What hurts the church is that the content of our message does not match the character of our lives. That's what hurts the church. And Paul says, we aimed for holiness and righteousness and to be blameless among you. Now, let's just be honest. None of us would claim to be perfect, right? We rub shoulders long enough. We realize, whoa, you are messed up. I am messed up. Wow, this is a room full of really messed up people. And here's the reality. When we realize that and we're honest about it, now we all go, man, isn't God's grace amazing? That he uses a room full of messed up people to bring light to our city. Isn't that crazy how that works? And so we respond to his grace that way. But like Paul, here's our goal. Our aim is still holiness. Our aim is holiness. Because we want the content of the gospel to match the character of our lives. It has to be our aim, just like Paul. Last few verses here, here's what it says. For you know how, like a father with children. So on one verse, he's a mom. On another verse, he's a dad. I don't know what's going on here. But anyways, he says, so, so you know how, like a father with children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and we charged you that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Like a father, we're, we're equipping you. We're, we're challenging you. We're pushing you outside the house and we're saying go walk in a manner worthy of the of God go walk in a manner worthy of him because he's called you and he's invited you into this and so we see that the Thessalonian church experienced Paul's example okay he said listen you thought everybody's saying that this was a failure everybody's saying that this was in vain but you've been looking at it the wrong way just because I got beat out of this town doesn't mean God wasn't doing something amazing because what happened, and we're going to discover these things, what happened in those three weeks created a foundation on which the church was built and growing. So they looked at his example <clears throat> and it created a foundation for that church. But part of the reason that it was becoming so effective is because the church then became imitators of his example. The church started living according to these things. So what we're going to do, and this is what it says in verse 13 and 14. It says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but you accepted it as it really is, the word of God. What he preached, the church accepted it, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And so there's something about them putting into practice these things. So I want to give us three things that they imitated that we are now invited as the church today to start imitating. All right. First one is this. Let our aim be to please God. Let our aim be to please God. A lot of times what drives me and, and I, if we know each other well, you know, Harrison's a people pleaser. That's what he does. He tries to find ways to make people happy. That's what my, my I've, I've been that way my whole life. I'm the second child, which means I'm the most screwed up one in our family. That's the way I translate it, but that, you know, you can ju judge for yourself. So people pleaser, born and raised that way, all right? 
So, Scripture says, let your aim be to please God. Let that be the thing that drives you. And here's how I understand this. There's a difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker in Scripture, okay? So as a people pleaser, I'm all about keeping the peace. Here's what that means. And many of you, if you're, if you're married or you've got a roommate or different things, some of you are, all, are, you, are like me. You're peacekeepers. You don't want to stir up the pot. You don't want anything to be wrong. So the dirt in your life, what you do is you sweep it under the rug and you go, we're good. Everything's fine. You're good. I'm good. We're not going to talk about our issues. We're not going to make things better. We're per- pursuing false peace and we're okay with it because we're trying to please people. That's what a peacekeeper does. They create false peace, but a peacemaker is different. Paul was a peacemaker. How did they treat him? They beat him out of every city he was in. But he was determined to bring the peace of God, a true and lasting peace to that place. And it was driven by his desire to please God. So here's how I understand it. A peacekeeper aims to please people while a peacemaker aims to please God. And here's the reality. When you become a peacemaker, when you become someone focused on pleasing God, here's one reality you will discover that as you aim to please God. It was true for Paul. It was true for the Thessalonians. It will be true for you. Suffering is on its way. Suffering is a part of this. Because when you aim to please God, you're saying what you think is secondary. I'm living according to a different standard. So you're going to encounter suffering of some different kinds. Let me just name some. First off, you're going to experience suffering, uh, spiritual suffering. By saying my aim is to please God, you have now made yourself an enemy of Satan and the darkness. So he's coming. He does not like you. He will try to ruin your marriages. He will try to destroy your families. He will try to make you trip up in every aspect. He will challenge your holiness. He will challenge your pursuit of God. He'll challenge anything he can to destroy what God is doing in you. So expect a spiritual sort of suffering. Here's a second one. Relational suffering. As you say, I'm going to please God, that means the friends you've been hanging with don't invite you to the same parties. The friends you've been hanging with and doing life with now think you're weird and think that you don't, this is, this is not okay now. Now that, now when I'm around you, I feel bad about myself and I don't like feeling bad about myself, so I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. So you might encounter relational suffering. Here's another one, economical suffering. When your aim is to please God, you're not driven by money. Here's a reality. For some of us, the Lord might be inviting you to sell all you have and go serve the poor somewhere. If that's true, the suffering is I don't get all the things that the world says I need. I'm not investing in all the things that the world says is most important. But when your aim is to please God, which has eternal ramifications, then that doesn't drive you anymore. So you're going to experience these different kinds of suffering. But the point is, just like it was for Paul, our suffering becomes the platform for sharing the gospel of Jesus. It was in the midst of Horatio Spafford's suffering that he wrote a song 
that has been sharing the gospel and encouraging the church and building people up in their most broken moments of life for over 140 years. His suffering became the platform for the gospel. Your suffering will become the platform for the gospel. Here's the second thing. Let us not only share the gospel of God with one another, but also our own lives. Listen, one of the great paradoxes of the kingdom of heaven is this. That joy and significance is found not in what you gain, but what you give. The joy and significance in the kingdom is found not in what you gain, but in what you give. Paul is saying, I poured myself out for you. And in doing so, he received incredible joy because he saw the family built up. He saw people around. He saw a church who was born and three weeks later thriving. The only way that's possible is through the power of God. But because he shared his life, and that's the invitation for us. Let's share the gospel. Let's share how good God is to us. Share how good Jesus is in our lives. But more than that, we need to be present with people. We need to share our lives with one another. If we're not sharing our lives, spending this time sharing our very selves with one another, we are missing our picture of the church is limited. We don't see things the way Jesus sees things. It requires us to share of ourselves. Because you've been given gifts, you've been given the Spirit of God, you've been given the ability to pick people up. And if you don't share your life, those things are hindered, those things are capped. So he says, share not only the gospel, but share. Let us share our lives with one another. Here's the last thing. Let us walk in a manner worthy of God. Let us, as a church, compassion, walk in a manner worthy of God. Of God. I just read a book called The Great Omission by Dallas Willard, which, if you're a reader, I would say, man, jump into this. This book is amazing. But here's what it says. He has this quote, and he hammered this idea over and over and over, and here's what he says. May I give you this word? Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. For some of us, we thought that, oh, no, it's grace and no effort. Because that means it's a work. He says, whoa, 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 that's not a biblical idea. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. You can't earn God's favor. That's why it's called grace. It's a gift. See, earning is an attitude. I worked, I did this, I deserve it now. Effort, it's an action. It's a response you see, God's grace is what inspires us to live each day with our eyes set on eternity, aiming to please him, set on his kingdom, which is bigger than us, and it's beyond us. And as we set our eyes on the things of heaven, which is eternity, our hands and our feet will follow. As we set our eyes on the things of God, that's what will happen. Our hands and our feet will do the same. They will walk down the same path. They will walk down the ways of Jesus. And this is why it's so important, because our world is trapped in darkness. Do you get this? You have friends who are grasping for life. They're all asking the same question. How am I going to be saved? Is this the path? No. Is this the path? No. Our world is trapped in darkness. And Jesus sees this and says, I'm sending the church. I'm sending the church 
to be the light, to stand in dark places, to be like a fire that consumes things and reveals and exposes the truth of the kingdom so that the things of our world will fade. And so our people will grow thirsty and hungry for eternity. And he says, I'm sending you. You are the church. You are the answer. You are the way this is going to happen, but it will not happen apart from. It won't happen unless you please God first. All right? Unless you please him first. Unless you begin to share the gospel through your life. And again, finally, unless we're walking in a manner worthy of God. Jesus said, the darkness will not win. I've already decided that. But here's my plan. The church, you, this is how we win. Through the power of the Spirit of God. So let us be that kind of church that imitates Him and lives for His glory. Ready? All right, let me pray. Here we go. Father, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote. I know that for him, he was just fighting so many things at this point. Trying to convince, trying to defend, trying to just let people, trying to encourage the church body, which was probably just second guessing themselves. Like, is this actually worth it? Is this going to work? And he writes to just encourage and say, listen, what, what happened is producing something that has eternal significance. And what I'm praying is that for us, here today, that we would begin to trust what we hear in Scripture and now imitate it. Because honestly, our world is desperate for the light of your kingdom. And we're the ones who hold it and say, let us introduce you, let us introduce you. Come know our God, come know his goodness. I pray that we're the kind of people that we set our minds on eternity and our hands and our feet follow. Let us not grow stagnant. Oh, Jesus, don't let us do that. Help us to run after you, we pray in your name. Amen.